And so we return to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our exposition through the book. But we're not at the Ten Commandments. I won't say we're finished with them. Uh, If you recall, the Ten Commandments are those governing principles. So we'll be coming back to those even as we go into the law. But before even the law gets there, that is getting into the nitty-gritty details of how these principles impact the life of an average Israelite, uh, we return to the scene and to rehearse the context of where God's law, how He revealed it to His people. And what does that say about God? What does that say about us? And in short, they might feel a bit out of place. And I think that's something we can all relate to, um, namely because I'm sure you've been in this kind of scenario. You, maybe you experienced this as you know, maybe your business or whatever went through COVID lockdowns and everybody was Zooming everything, and then your business says, oh yeah, now it's time to come back. Well, maybe there was some kind of dress code before, but now you're like, well, what's the dress code now? Because everybody seems super casual. We wear dress shirts on top and then we're in shorts on bottom because we're always on video call. Well, it's different now. So what am I supposed to do? Or maybe you're invited to some wedding or some other kind of formal reception or event. And I just start having this crisis of, well, how am I supposed to dress for this thing? And the panic is not helped by this. You know, I was Googling online trying to figure out what are, what are the different dress codes out there? Well, there's 12 different dress code levels, by the way. Everything from come as you are, which apparently is different than casual. I don't understand this. And then you have smart casual, which made me instantly think, well, what's dumb casual look like? <laughs> then you get to garden casual, and then you can go all the way up to black tie. And then with that, though, you have black tie optional, which means not black tie. Anyway, finally, you have white tie, and so that's what you would wear, apparently, when you're invited to go meet the queen, and so, no, I don't have a white tux, and no, well, I never need it, okay? But have you ever showed up in some place, and you're just totally overdressed or underdressed? It's embarrassing. You just feel like, I'm in the wrong place. I don't belong here, and I realize you can even feel like that coming into to a church, to a new church. It can be a little nerve-wracking. What if I show up in a tie and no one else has one? Or what if everybody has a tie and I'm in shorts and flip-flops like I did when I came to my first church in San Diego? And not to make everyone self-aware at this moment, nobody look around to look how everyone's dressed. But if you wish to honor the Lord in formal dress, as long as it's modest and doesn't direct attention to yourself, go for it. Similarly, if you want to come very casually, but it doesn't distract or direct attention to you, go for it. That's fine. We understand this. We even saw this last week. We know and we care, as God does, far more about the heart than we do about whether or not how we look on the outside. It's not about this formality of externals. It's about what's going on in the heart. That's what God's after. And so, as opposed to, do I fit in because... Am I wearing the right clothes as I come to worship? We want to know as we're coming into His presence to meet God in fellowship, how then do we dress our hearts for worship? How then do we prepare our hearts to be prepared and ready to meet with this God, to get near Him in fellowship? For for this really is the setting that we see here at Mount Sinai. God's coming down, and as He comes down, and the way He does, it teaches us many things, but at least two. One we went over last week, again to rehearse. God's after the heart, okay? But two, as He comes down like He does, we see He is like no other God. 
Namely, because he is the only God. But more than this, whatever God you could think up or imagine or whatever God and thing you were serving today, this God is nothing like that. So how do we prepare our hearts to go meet with that God, the true God? So that's the summary today. This kind of God demands a certain kind of worship. And so we're going to reform our worship this morning. We're going to rectify our worship by four directives, four mandates to prepare our hearts to be ready to meet and fellowship with this God. This kind of God demands a certain kind of worship. And so this means to prepare our hearts, number one, we need to raise our view of his greatness. How do you prepare to meet with this God? Well, you need to raise your estimation of him because I guarantee you it's just far too low. We in this text at the end here, which we read a moment ago, we get a glimpse of God's power, what he's really like in all of his glory. He's greater, more powerful, more holy, more awesome, and more terrifying than you could possibly realize. So to recall, where are we? We've just been working through the Ten Commandments since May. So we were going slow motion, you know, one by one, going through these Ten Commandments, considering, you know, what's the heart of the command? But after we finish in verse 17, the text just jumps right back to the context. It's like things went in slow motion, and then zip, we're at full speed again, and here we are, the, the context of all that's surrounding the Ten Commandments that they've been given. Because what we discover as we look at this text, we find it's one thing to hear these laws, to study these laws, you know, in the comfort of this auditorium, or maybe, you know, you're reading through the Ten Commandments in the morning and your devotions, and you got your, you know, nice quiet kitchen table, you got your cup of glorious coffee, just enjoying this time with the Lord. Or maybe you're teaching your, your family, working through the Ten Commandments, like some kind of catechism at night after dinner. You know, it's a very peaceful context. It's a silent word, a quiet word that you're, you're ruminating over. Well, it's one thing to hear the laws, the Ten, spoken like that, and then there's a whole other way to hear them, and that's the way Israel heard them. When God's people first hear the Ten Words, it was no quiet meditation. It was no Bible study with all of their books open thinking, hmm, what does this really mean? God spoke his powerful word from heaven. And in the process, every sense of the Israelite, each one, was being overloaded beyond capacity with this raucous storm of the glory and weight of God all around them. Let me remind you, look at verse 18 of Exodus 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. So God was speaking these Ten Commandments. You see the last one, the end of verse 17. Then we get to verse 18. And what was the context for it? It was in the midst of this Sensory tornado. It was like a hailstorm of lightning thunders and blasting sirens echoing in their ears. You know, it's like they were before, they were, but they were before a mountain, but it's like the mountains of volcano that's erupting. And not only is it erupting, but you're at the foot of that mountain and you realize the mountain's alive. And not only is it alive, but it's talking directly to you. Remember, we talked about that with the Ten Commandments. They weren't just given to y'all. They were given to each particular Israelite directly. That's what this word is about. The mountain's alive, and it's talking to you. 
But notice, this vision, you know, of all of this majesty, the thunder, the lightning, the power, the, the trumpet, that didn't start only after he spoke the Ten Commandments. It was being carried on through the whole midst as God spoke from heaven. Because look at this, just flip over, you know, looking at the other page probably, or flipping over, looking at chapter 19. Again, what's the context? Israel had been captive in Egypt. God had delivered them out of Egypt most miraculously. And he's going to eventually take them onto the promised land. But before he gets to the promised land, God has a stop for them, a long stop. They're going to stop at Mount Sinai. Why? They have to go meet God. That's what's going to happen. And that's what's happening now in our text. And God's preparing to make a personal introduction. That is, God's word had been coming to the people through Moses. But now God's going to talk to them directly. And here's what it looked like as it began. So we're in chapter 19. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Does that kind of sound familiar to what we read earlier? Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Again, that all sounds familiar to our text, doesn't it? It's the same kind of stuff. Thunders, lightning, thick cloud, loud trumpet blast. And the people are still doing the same thing. They start trembling. So here's the thing. They see this massive God in all of his glory and power, and they start shaking, quaking in their boots. And then God starts speaking the Ten Commandments. And it's not like, you know, he turned off the volcano and spoke to them and turned it back on. The Ten Commandments came with all of that power. It was an exploding volcano spoken to them the whole time. That is, the whole time he spoke to them, this is what they were hearing and seeing, the lightning, the flashings, the power, such that when he begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, followed by a thunderclap. You shall have no other gods before me, accompanied by the ground shaking under their feet. Honor your father and your mother, spoken like a blasting siren thundering in their ears. You shall not murder, followed by again another shaking earthquake. You shall not covet. And then lightning strikes at their feet. This is the context for how they're hearing God talk. What is this about? Why is God showing himself like this? You know, it's kind of like we want to go back and say, shh, calm down, you're scaring all the children. Reasons. But before we move on to figure out the why God chose to reveal himself this way, we just need to slow down for a moment and consider what does it say about our God that he can even show this side of himself? What impression does it give us? Because this was very intentional, wasn't it? What does he want us to realize about him? Well, as we go back to chapter 20, verse 18, I mean, look at the people's response. Again, I don't think it surprised the Lord. And verse 18 says, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. You know, this view of God wasn't so endearing. This wasn't a big, squishy teddy bear to go hug. This was scary. They didn't want to get too close. And why? Because God has been overloading their senses. The screaming horns, the shaking grounds, the lightning, the thunder, all things that feel like they're going to kill me in a moment. 
And isn't that part of the point? As they're experiencing all of this, God could just do that to them, like he did to the Egyptians. It starts underlying the point, you have no power, you have no strength to oppose this God. Again, we've seen what he did to the Egyptians, just effortlessly taking the most powerful nation on earth, "Ah, I'm just going to throw it in the ocean. And now that God's talking to us? We're nothing before him. We cannot resist him. What does this mean? We're at his mercy. And the point is, this whole vision, the way God's coming to his people, is just to underscore humility. Oh, my people, be humble. He has redeemed you. He saved you. He set a special love on you. But he's appearing to them like this to tell them over and over, you are not God. You are not like God in this way. You are not God's peer. You are not his coworker. You're not a friend who you can just lead over and talk to. He doesn't seek you for counsel. Nor is he your buddy in your corner. He is the sovereign almighty. And he's invited you in, yes, and he's speaking, he's relating to you directly, speaking his word to you. But don't dare start to think that you all are peers on the same level. He's peering to them like this so they would understand you don't belong in the company of one so mighty, so powerful, so holy. In other words, you should feel when you come before this God dangerously out of place. Do you ever think of God like that? Our culture doesn't want to think of God like that. Have you domesticated your view of God? To try and tame him. To make him something you understand, that you can handle. A God who's more your buddy, your encourager. He's my co-pilot. More than he is your sovereign, your Lord, your king. We said it before, but the lower your view of God, very pedestrian and boring, this yawing view of God. I can tell you, Israel, when they heard God speak the Ten Commandments, nobody was yawning. When God becomes small, it just becomes so much easier for other things just to take God's place in our life, doesn't it? Those things become so far more important to us because they seem bigger. They, they have greater impact maybe in our daily life. But what's this point of this vision? They are so small. Those things we stress over. They are so weak, so insignificant compared to him. So where do we have to start? We have to raise our view of God's greatness. And trust me, wherever you wish to raise it, you'll never get it to where he is. You can't overestimate the power of this God. So let this fiery image, the lightnings, the thunder, the blazing siren, let those be that after image on the back of your brain that when you close your eyes, you can still see him, so to speak. That it would then impression how you live your whole life. So that's the first thing. Raise your view of his greatness. But immediately must follow this is then sense your need for a mediator. You need to feel your need then. 
You have not reckoned truly with this God if you do not immediately respond how Israel does here and see you need a safety net, you need a go-between, you need a shield. Because again, to be clear, God didn't misspeak or misstep when he showed up to Israel in this, again, in the old sense, this terrible way. This was intentional. Well, what was this about? Well, to, re- to remind you, we're back in chapter 20, looking at verse 18. And, and as they, Israel's there, they're trying to take in all of the staggering view of God, and they don't want to get near him, right? We saw that at the end of verse 18. The people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off. And yet, they don't turn around and run away, right? They've been drawn through Israel, or excuse me, out of Egypt. They've been his people. They, they, they've seen his love and faithfulness to them. So they're not just abandoning God, though they're scared. And so what's the solution? They have one. Verse 19. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So there it is. They're saying, we can't handle God just straight up. You know, it reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple. And what does he say in response? Wow, what a great movie that was. No, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unraveling. I've seen God. Well, they're hearing God and they're unraveling and they're saying, we can't take it. It's too much. We're going to give way. We're going to die. And so what are they going to do? But we don't want to run. Moses, I don't know how this works. You seem to handle this God okay. So we nominate you. (laughs) You go up the mountain, you talk to God, and you just bring us down the message. That works for us just fine. What are they saying? We need a mediator. We need a go-between. In this case, they're saying, we need a Moses. And so they ask for one. And this is how we discover really the, the first reason. Why did God appear just like this? Why did he appear so impressive, so intimidating? For this very reason, they would go, We can't take him on directly. We need a mediator. Because look back. Again, we're back to chapter 19. You're looking at the other page or flipping it over. But the Lord, before he gave the Ten Commandments, forecasted what was going to happen and what he was going to do and why. And so we have in verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. Okay, And that's a reference to you know, the lightning, the thunder, the thick cloud, the smoke, and all of this. But why? Why is he going to come in a thick cloud? That the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. That is in Moses. I want them to trust you, Moses. I want you to stand as a mediator between me and them, God's saying. Or more expressly, turn over with me to Deuteronomy. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. So just write in your Bible a couple books. Of course, Deuteronomy is the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means. And it's much of it's the rehearsal, the retelling of the whole giving of the law in the first place. And that's what we find as we look at Deuteronomy 5. And Moses recounts that, yes, the people asked for Moses to come stand between, between them and God. So look at down to verse 27. Of Deuteronomy 5. So this is the people's request. They say, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. 
And you, Moses, speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. So Moses, you go up and get the word, and you bring it down. That works for us. What do you think the Lord thought of this suggestion from the people? Do you think he was offended that the people didn't want to hear directly from him? If we can imagine some kind of scenario, I might be. Like imagine you're on some kind of blind date. You've been communicating with this person via text or email. A good friend of you set you guys up. And, you know, it seems like, wow, this seems like it's going to go well. We have a lot in common, this and that. And uh, as soon as you show up at the restaurant, you try and sit down at the table, and the lady backs up and runs to the bathroom and never comes back. I'd be offended. I might understand why, but that's another issue, right? Well, the Lord's not offended at all. This was all part of the plan, that they're backing up and asking for someone to take their place. Look at verse 28. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of the people which they have spoken. And note this, they are right in all that they've spoken. They had the right idea the whole time. I like the way the Legacy Bible puts it when it says it. And they have done well in all that they've spoken. God was glad they asked for a mediator. That was the whole point why he came to them in such an intimidating way. Why? What's going on? Before such a blazing holiness of God and his mighty magnificence, you need to see a sinner cannot get too close and survive. That sinner cannot tolerate God directly. He needs a go-between. He needs a, a big filter, you might say, a mediator, a shield, a diplomat to, to navigate this relationship on our behalf. And so God's not offended by this request in the least. He was, in a sense, hoping this was the conclusion they'd come to, and they'd ask for this very thing. His blazing holiness is too great to be taken in by this people. They needed a mediator. They saw it, and so they asked for one. But we understand they need a mediator, and things haven't changed because this God hasn't changed, so so do we. Now, this answer to that, or even becomes like the balance to where what we were talking about under that first mandate or directive. You know, raise your view of God's greatness. You need to see that He is a blazing holy fire. And some of us really need to do that. Again, raise our notions of God to be something considerable. Among many of us, he, God's not awesome. And I don't mean that's awesome. I mean creating awe. Doesn't throw us down to our knees. Well, that picture of God would, Right? We need to get there in our mind and our hearts. I mean, some of us, when we think about God, we can't even imagine a God who would make us tremble. Well, then you're not imagining the true God of the Bible. We need to get a bigger and more intimidating, honestly, view of God. Some of us need that really bad. Though, I admit, there are some of us here, though, that you're already terrified at the thought of a mighty God. And you don't want to get anywhere near Him. And based on what we've seen, that's not all wrong. You need a mediator. But even if you could get a mediator, you still don't want to get near this God. You have thoughts in your mind like, I'm too messed up. I've sinned too big. 
If you knew what I did this week, if you knew how I treated my kids, if you knew how I talked to that coworker, if you knew what I did, if you knew what I was thinking, if you knew where I went, God's done with me. He doesn't hear me. I can't get close to him. I know he doesn't want me. This is going on in my life. I've gone too far. I'll never get back to him. That's why it appears like this, isn't it? To scare us all so we can't get close. No, not at all. Remember, he set this up to send you a mediator. That's what this was about. Why? Because he wants mediation. He wants reconciliation. That's why he set this up so they'd call for Moses and so that you would see you need one. Because he wants you to draw near. That's the point of this. And he wants you to draw near safely. He wants you to get close, not so he can, you know, make sure he gets a good shot. He wants you to get close because he wants to fellowship with you because he wants to overwhelm you with his grace. But you need a mediator and there is one mediator between God and man and it's the risen Christ Jesus. This is why Christ came to make a way. To himself, be the way. Be the mediator. The one way to get back to fellowship with God because there's no way to get there on your own. Like we read in Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off and maybe backing up and thinking that he doesn't want you, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And what's the implication of this? He goes at the end of that section, verse 18. For through Christ, we both, we have access. You have access in one spirit to that Holy Father. By Christ, your mediator, by the assured effectiveness of his death to satisfy all of your sins, brothers and sisters, you have access to that holy God into fellowship with his blazing holiness. But Christ is there protecting you, defending you, defending you against any doubt, any accusations, any sins. Why? Because they were finished at the cross. As it says in Hebrews, for by one sacrifice, he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. And so here's the reality of what the cross and your mediators has done. And then we've got the reality of what we're feeling in our heart. Your guilt, you might feel like you can't shake it. Your shame, you might feel like you can't stomach it. You can't fathom it. You don't want to go back and remember any of those things. Your fears, they rise as you think how great this God is. What is he going to do with me? Well, know this. The mediator proves he wants you. The mediator proves he's made a way to get you back. And so he's saying, hide in the mediator in Jesus Christ. And come near even with boldness. <laughs> Before that, yes, even with boldness to the throne of grace. Because he wants you. I love the way the Apostle John puts it in 1 John, in his rather strict and stinging letter. And if you've read 1 John lately, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, he says, as it begins chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And again, if you're familiar with the book, you're like, you're not kidding. He's very black and white. Some of those things are very confrontive and they sting. But then he adds this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a mediator with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
pleading his righteousness, his wounds as your own, so that no charge will ever land those who are hiding in the Son of God, except maybe this. Jesus charged to say, oh yes, you might call him a sinner, but I took all those sins. I paid for those too, all of them. He is mine. That's what the mediator does. So sense your need and cling to that mediator. Third, increase your obedience by fearing him. Increase your obedience by fearing him. So as we return to Exodus 20, we detect this other reason why God came to his people in just this awesome, intimidating, knee-knocking way. And he tells us about it in verse 20. And this starts to kind of show like the tightrope we're walking this morning between the holiness of God and the grace of a mediator. How do these things go together? And we see the tension because Moses is going to give us what looks like a contradiction. He's going to say, fear God. And he's going to say, don't fear God. How does this work? Well, let's listen to Moses and he can help us out. Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And so Moses opens with this reassurance, don't be afraid. And yet, curiously, by the time we get to the middle of it, he says, let the fear of God be before you always, is the idea. Fear, don't fear. Don't fear, but do fear. So which is it, Moses? What's going on? Well, again, that's how things look on the surface, but let's look carefully at this tension, and I think it'll be clarified for us. Again, Israel, they're cowering in fear, and so Moses approaches with that word of reassurance, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Now, put yourself in Israel's shoes. Imagine the great mountain there, it's on fire. (laughs) Everything's very scary, and you're all backing up very scared, but Moses is coming down. And he's like, hey, hey, wait, don't be afraid. I think we're all like, Moses, turn around. Do you see that? Of course I'm scared of that. Look behind you. True. But listen, it's not what you think. Because Moses explains why God's coming and appeared just like this. Because notice in verse 20, the word for, F-O-R there. He says, do not fear, for. Here's the reason why you don't have to be afraid. For God has come to test you. Which some of us, when we hear a test is coming, we're like, that makes us more nervous. But anyway, leave that for a moment. But what's the point if it's a test? At least this, that it's only a test. It's like those warning signals that come on, you know, on the TV or on the radio periodically. Or on our phones now. And it's like on the radio you would hear, this is a test and only a test. And then you hear the annoying buzz and stuff telling you what, what would happen if there was a tornado or something. Well, this is only a test is what he's telling them. So though God has come and appeared in his fierce glory and unimatchable terrifying power, it's only a test. He's coming to test you. What's the implication? He's not coming in that fierce power to wipe you off the face of the earth. You know, he could have done that in the Red Sea quite some time ago. He didn't need to bother with this whole Mount Sinai persona and all of this. No, but he's saying, I don't want you to forget what I'm like, though. 
Because we're going to be in this relationship. I've been so merciful to you, and I've given you my law. And you might think, well, he loves me so, we don't really need to do this stuff. No, he's appearing this way to say, don't mistake my kindness, don't mistake my mercy for weakness or powerlessness or apathy. I'm more holy than you imagine. This relationship rests only on my grace. Don't forget that. In other words, he hasn't come with this power and showed up because he's ready to throttle you, but to teach us, to expose our sin, that's what the law had been doing, but then to direct us the right way. And so what is the right way? Well, that's this proper fear and respect That'll keep you from sin. So we keep reading in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Okay, well, what's the purpose of the test? What are we supposed to learn? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So interestingly, don't fear. God's only testing you, but it's so that you would fear him all the time. In other words, though, that all of your life would be lived in fearing God. That there is an appropriate fear of God that should dominate your life. And what does this mean? Well, I mean, this is what the whole book of Proverbs, the wisdom books of the Bible are all about, isn't it? Remember Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7? It's the summary of the whole thing. The fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise it, is the point. That is despise fearing God. What is this about? As we walk through life, what does it mean to walk by faith? We have a mindfulness of that majestic power like what's pictured here on Sinai. That should flavor the way you look and see all of life. It influences what you think, what you do in everything. But Rick, how does that work? Because you mentioned 1 John, we read that love casts out fear. You know, in the gospel, we're never going to be judged, at least condemned in this way. So so how can we fear God? Well, again, consider more carefully what Moses says here. God came to them just this way so they would see his terrifying power to test them, not condemn, but so they'd always fear him. And why is that important? Because, and here's where it results, so that you may not sin. Okay, so now we're starting to get to what's at root here. What does a true fear of God do? It keeps you from sinning. A holy fear of God will make it so you don't want to get near sin. And this starts to remedy the tension a bit. See, God comes in this ferocious glory, not to wipe you off the face of the earth, but to come and teach you that he's not one to be reckoned with. He's not one that takes sin lightly. He's not one to be messed with. He's holy and it's powerful. How do we reconcile these things? Don't fear God and fear God. I'm going to try it for two ways for you. I think one, I think we're just, at least in my own knowledge and vocabulary, we're just limited in the English language. And I think the best way to illustrate it is this, to simply say that there, we should not fear God and to cower and withdraw and merely be terrified of Him. Instead, our fear now, especially through the gospel, is one of respect and reverence. However, don't interpret respect and reverence as apathy, things don't matter. No, the the whole point of his blazing glory is to show you he should not be messed with, and it's dangerous to mess with this God. 
So in vocabulary, it's the difference between fear and reverent respect, humble respect to God. But in the sense of I look at creation, here's the other analogy that comes to mind. And the closest one I can think of is our use in our society of nuclear power. I think it illustrates something of what's going on here. Because on the one hand, you think about nuclear power, I mean, it is terrifying. The power of the A-bomb is just hard to comprehend. I think we've all seen the videos of an atomic blast, and then just the blast itself goes out, and buildings just blow to bits, just get blown away. Not to mention the heat. Even of those old A-bombs, at a blast center, in one of those A-bombs, the temperatures can reach some 540,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You thought Richmond summers in Richmond were hot, right? It was not 540,000 degrees. Well, how hot is that? That's 50 times hotter than the sun. That's pretty hot. All in this little bomb. It's an unparalleled power in our world, and it can destroy anything that comes in contact with it. And yet, if that power gets harnessed and channeled, it becomes the longest-lasting, most efficient, cleanest energy source that we can have in nuclear power. You work there. You're at nuclear power plants doing stuff, and it's like safe. Like you're not coming back with three eyeballs or melting to bits. Like that's what that should happen, you would think. But it can be harnessed, and it's a very useful power if you respect the power, if you treat it properly, and never forget what you're dealing with. It seems like in Russia in that time at Chernobyl, they forgot what they were dealing with, and the devastation was great. But if you can respect the power, know what you're dealing with, heeding it will do you so well. And that's what the fear of God is like. You don't have to be fearful to back away and run. The fear of God, you see this God, you're intrigued. Because you know you can come close in mercy. But you know you do well to fear and obey. That's what his picture is telling you. Because he doesn't want you to sin. And so quite practically then, in a in similar way to what we talked about coveting, because he says here, if the fear of God's always before you, that'll keep you from sin. You won't commit sins then. Well, practically then, as you work through your week this week and you've sinned, well, you can always, there's your sin, and you can always work it back. And a part of the, part of the answer is, why did you sin? Because in that instance, you were not fearing God. Because think of it like this, whatever sin you committed, yelled at your kids or looked at something you weren't supposed to, would you have done that on Mount Sinai with God right behind you? I think most of us know. But we need that kind of picture of God in our mind, that he is that powerful, that mighty, that glorious. Because when we're willing to sin and flaunt his grace, we've forgotten who we're messing with. Flaunting his words and ways for us. It's destructive for us. That's what it's reminding us on this mountain. Sin is destructive. It would undo us. That's why God is scary. Because we're sinners and he's not. So that view should keep us away from sin. R.C. Sproul would talk about our whole life is lived, I think the expression was quorum dio. That's before the face of God. And all the more we're saying before his holy and powerful face, we live before him. He saved you in Christ. He redeemed you. He rescued you to be for Him. So don't forget that and don't mess with His grace that gave it to you. Walk in obedience. You do that, you're fearing Him, you won't sin. Finally, constrain your worship by His Word. How do you come to this God? Well, we know this 
He's telling us he takes seriously how he should be worshipped. And it must be constrained by the very word of God. In other words, we're not at liberty to determine how he should be praised and worshipped. That is, by our own ideas and notions. That does not respect him. We do well to listen to what he tells us and say, okay, if that's how you want to be worshipped, sounds great. Period. Because as we look at verses 22 through 26, now back in Exodus 20, we find this. He instructs Israel how to worship him and why they should do it. And the focus falls on two things. Worship in regards to images and altars. And in both cases, the message is really clear. Don't get creative. Okay, let me show you what I mean. First off, he talks about images. And we read in verse 22 then, he goes like this. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, and you shall not make yourselves gods of gold. So what shall they do with images? Should they think about making them? No, don't. And in a way, this reiterates just the second command, right? Don't make any images. But it's not merely about that. What is going on here? He's saying, and it's in that first part there, he says, you have seen for yourselves, and this is interesting, you've seen for yourselves that I talk to you from heaven. So the question is, when he talked to them out of Mount Sinai, what of God did they see? Nothing. He's invisible. Yeah, they saw the smoke and they saw the lightning and thunder, but they didn't see God. Actually, this is made even more clear in Deuteronomy. You'll have to look at that later. But the point is, they did not see any form, so don't try guessing what he looks like. Because you have no idea. And any form you make of the invisible God, it's going to be a distortion. It has to be. So what's this point? You saw no form. You don't know what I look like. Don't dishonor me by guessing. Don't get creative in your worship. All right, furthermore, he turns to the instructions on altars. These were the places of sacrifice and worship. But understand, even if you want to worship God and thank Him, you can't worship Him just any way you want. And here's the curious thing about it. It seems to be this. The less you do, the less you improvise, the less you even touch, the purer and better your worship will be. Look at this. First of all, he tells them what kind of altar they can and should build. Verse 24, you should build an altar of earth. You shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Note this, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God wants to come and meet his people. And when he does, he wants to bless them and favor them and have fellowship with them. He wants to do that. But how do you prepare to do that? You're going to build an altar. And how are you supposed to do it? What are you supposed to make the altar out of? Well, it's an earthen altar. What does that translate to? Dirt. What are you supposed to make this altar out of? Dirt. It's just a mound. It's just a mound of dirt. It's not special. It's not adorned. It basically takes no effort to put it together. There's nothing nice or fancy to our sensibilities about it. Actually, you'd look at it and you'd be like, that's not fit for God. It's just a bunch of dirt. Well, keep that in mind as we keep reading. Look at verse 25. Because if you don't want to do the dirt altar, you can use stones, but you've got to be careful. He says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, that is cut stones, 
For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. But isn't that interesting? If you're going to bother making an altar of stones, here's how you got to do it. Make sure the stones are uncut, jagged, they don't fit together quite right, and don't you dare try and cut them to make them fit together well. Why? As soon as you touch that stone, you pollute it. You know, again, it calls to mind Uzzah. Remember him? The, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the box that God met his people, was being moved. It was on the, it was on the cart with the oxen, and the oxen slipped, and so the, the beautiful box where God met his people, the golden box, is sliding off the cart. And Uzzah reaches out, and he touches that ark. And what happens? God throws him a party and says, thanks for keeping my box out of the mud. No. Kills him on the spot. Why? Because Uzzah's sinful hand was far more polluting than any amount of dirt that God created. And that's what's happening when we try and cut these stones and put them together. We're not making things better to make them look nicer. We're making it worse. But, but doesn't God love beauty? And we'll even see that a bit with the temple as it comes or the tabernacle. But doesn't God want beautiful things to honor him? In a way, no, he doesn't. And why not? Here it is. Lest you get confused about the reason why he's coming to bless you. That's why. Think about it. Don't yourself make idols. Don't try and represent me. I don't need an image. Don't make a nice altar. Don't put your efforts and time into it. Just give me a pile of dirt or a stack of random rocks. Don't give me anything else. Don't make a pretty altar. Why? Lest when I come and fellowship with you, you think it's because of you. That you think I'm coming to you because you made a prettier altar than that guy. That's not why I'm coming to you. What's the one reason he comes? It's because of what lies on that altar. A sacrifice. That's why he'll come in fellowship with you. So bring no efforts and works of your own. Come only with an unadorned sacrifice. That's the only reason God could come near in worship. That's the only reason he could ever give his spirit to live inside of you. The only reason he could even draw you eventually into heaven, into his presence. There is only one, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's where this was all pointing. And there's nothing you should add to that work. And don't you dare try. Because then you're saying it wasn't enough. So don't try and improve or improvise in worship. Instead, our call is be captivated by the one sacrifice that means he can come meet with us and bless us. And that's the cross of Christ. That's why our worship as a church, it's not creative. We don't. We don't sit around in our staff meeting or elders meetings. Ooh, how can we really surprise them this week? As you well know, if you come. But what do we do? We are regulated by the gospel word. That's what we do week in, week out. So what do we do? We read the gospel word. We have public reading of scripture. We preach the gospel word. We sing the gospel word to one another. We even pray the gospel word back to God. And we show that gospel word as we obey in baptism and in the Lord's table. But it all goes back to the gospel and his word. 
We're not at liberty to improvise. We're not trying to add to what the cross has done. We need no other sacrifice, no other claim. We rest on one, and that's the risen Jesus Christ. All of our worship as we gather and then as we scatter throughout the week must underscore, underline, and highlight this truth. We are accepted by one sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could go to the Corinthians and say, bless you. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the cry of the church. And in a similar way, may we sing and join with this cry in our hearts that Jesus, your blood and your righteousness, those alone are my glorious dress. In flaming worlds, in these arrayed, with joy, we can lift up our head. Let's do that in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. For it's better than what we can imagine. You are more holy than we can imagine. You are more powerful than we can imagine. And it can shock us, it can surprise us, it can terrify us. And yet we see in the gospel that that kind of wrath and power was satisfied at the cross. What a mercy you've given us in your son. May we not flaunt it. May we not take advantage of it, but may we fear you always and so keep far from sin. Give us a big view of you, big view of your holiness, and so a big view of your mercy that we might walk in joyful obedience, a people that Christ has bought. Do that for your glory, we pray. Amen.